Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hiya, handsome. Come to join the party. Hey, party people, welcome to the Patrama Party. I'm Remy Ramirez, your host, as we navigate tragedy, but with a disco vibe. It's like, do the hustle, but like the side hustle because free market capitalism. So grab a spritzer. Did they even drink in the 70s? I feel like they just snorted cocaine all day. So grab your cocaine and your platforms because we're getting into it. This week, we're talking about the trauma of motherhood. We know all about the joy of motherhood, that adage our culture loves to ram down everyone's throat. And of course, momming comes with lots of joy as well, but it also comes with trauma. And that's what's on the menu today. Obviously, it's not something I can speak to directly because to to be fully transparent, I took one look at what moms go through and I was like, yeah, honestly, I don't think I can, I don't think I can hang with that. So that is why I'm so excited to introduce my longtime friend and founder and CEO of Mothership Rising, which is a free app that connects parents to a circle of emotional support. Laura Manuel. Hi, Laura. Welcome. Hi, Remy. I'm really glad to be here with you. Yay. And we both have our robes on. (laughs) (laughs) We both, we did not like, we did not check in with each other about that. We just both showed up on the Zoom in our robes. We're like, hi. (laughs) (laughs) yours is like a kimono though it's like actually beautiful I'm just over here in fleece yeah it's a robe time of life it is a robe time of life girl also okay so tell us your rising sign your moon sign and your sun sign okay my rising sign is Sagittarius yes my moon sign is Aries and my sun sign is Gemini oh this fucking fire air combo you know i'm fire and air too so also like i didn't know we had two of the three that that were the same i'm sag sun gemini rising mm-hmm. Lieberman. cute cute look at us okay well i'm obsessed with uh that gemini in your chart i too have much air and we air folk love to talk and share ideas and learn so i am stoked to air out with you today also i know you mentioned you wanted to kind of lay a thought groundwork before we got started. So fucking yes, let's go for it. Okay, great. Thank you for that. I just wanted to begin with some level setting and acknowledgement. As humans, we have these core basic needs. We have a lot of core needs, but some of the ones that we'll be talking about today are that we have the need for love to experience self-love, to give love and receive love. We have the need for self-worth. We have the need to feel like we are valuable and important. We have the need for freedom and autonomy. We have the need for safety and security, and we have a need to be understood. So like you mentioned in this conversation, we're going to shine a light on the traumatic parts of becoming a mother where these needs go unmet. The parts of this profound life transition that call up pain to be healed. 
And just for my child who may be listening to this in the future or through the bedroom door now, I want to <laughs> acknowledge that talking about these traumatic parts, don't tell the full story of the journey of love and joy and poopy diapers. And, you know, I want him to know that I know that I am 100% meant to be this person's mother, and I would not change that for the world. I also really wanted to acknowledge that my experience of becoming a mother is full of privilege as a white and cisgendered person. Not everyone who births identifies as a woman or a mother. There is a black maternal health crisis due to our systemic racism in this country. And there are many paths to parenthood, such as surrogacy and adoption. Um, when I'm talking today and when I talk about myself, I'll use the term mother because that's my lived experience. Amazing. Yeah. Thank you so much for those words. Motherhood, like pretty much, you know, I think everything we talk about on this pod is so complex and layered. Uh, and I really appreciate you bringing those pieces in and naming them. And I'll also say when I'm talking about mothering, I'll be talking about women, not because women are the only ones who give birth, but because the people I'm close to who birth children all identify as women. But that said, if anyone has birthed children and doesn't identify as a woman, let me know if you want to come on and chat it up about your trauma. I would love to create space for that. Uh, okay. I think, I think we're good. So normally this is the point where I talk about my experience on the subject, but like I mentioned, not a mom that said, I do have a mom. So I'll share a little bit about her experience. Laura, feel free to jump in at any point while I'm talking or, you know, also just like you're fine to pop on an eye mask, burn some incense, chill out, whatever you're into. And then in a minute, I'll loop back with some questions I have for you. How does that sound? Perfect. Okay. Cool. So my mom, as I've mentioned previously on the pod, I'm like 99% sure has borderline personality disorder. And I'm sure that showed up in her life in various ways before I was even a thought in her mind. But I do think that the stresses of being a single mom exacerbated her symptoms a lot. And I won't go too much into this, um, but I did some digging and I want to mention the fact that currently 25% of all children in the U S a quarter of all children in the U S are growing up in a single parent household. And of those households, 80% are single mother households. And according to the Pew research center, the U S ranks highest in the world in single mother households. Number one. Globally, this, this girl did her research. Okay. Globally, there are 101.3 million single mothers. And to give you an idea, I couldn't even find statistics on how many single dads there are worldwide. Like it's not even a conversation. And so while some single moms are of course the result of like, you know, becoming widowed or women wanting to be single moms, I think it's pretty safe to say that there's a real epidemic of men abandoning their children and the women they impregnate in various ways. And as a result of that, many women are forced into motherhood either because dudes just skip out or they're abusive and the, and the women have to leave or because a woman gets pregnant from being raped or she gets pregnant on accident and doesn't have access to abortion because the laws in her state 
are so prohibitive and by the way, fucked. And then the guy doesn't want anything to do with fatherhood and fucks off. And needless to say, every single one of those scenarios is super traumatizing. So to link this back to my mom, she, in my opinion, was pretty naive when she chose to partner with my dad. He already had a daughter from his first marriage that he was like pretty actively not parenting. But my mom really believed it would be different with her, which, you know, like that kind of thinking we can absolutely chalk up at least in part to her own childhood trauma. Her biological dad skipped out on the family when she was a baby, which really goes back to what I was just talking about. And then her single mom um, remarried sort of urgently because financially it was super difficult with three kids, especially in the fifties. And the man she remarried was a real monster. And I'm just adding that about my grandmother because it's another anecdotal moment around the trauma of being a mother, particularly a single mom and the repercussions it can have. So anyway, by the time my mom was pregnant with me, things were already on a steep decline in her marriage. And actually the lore of my entrance into the world is that my mom told a girlfriend of hers that she was pregnant. And her friend didn't seem stoked about it. And when my mom was like, why are you being weird? Her friend said, look, I didn't want to be the one to tell you this, but your husband has a girlfriend, which super blindsided my mom and broke her heart. So she decided she was going to talk to this woman, this other woman. And if this woman said that she and my dad were in love, my mom would abort me. But if the woman said that they were just casually sexing, then my mom would keep me because there was a chance at saving the marriage. Well, the woman said they weren't in love and clearly my mom kept me, but that was for sure the beginning of the end of her marriage. And when my dad became abusive with us, that's when my mom left him. At that point, I was still just a baby. I was six months when my mom left my dad, which, you know, my dad was a walking red flag from the beginning, but my mom just didn't have the emotional tools to recognize that. So she truly was in shock when she looked around and realized she was a single mom with not one, but two babies. And that really affected her mothering style. My mom was very angry about being a single mom and that filtered heavily into our lives as her children. And part of that bitterness was about the fact that my dad never paid child support like my entire life. And in fact, she took him to court over it, but the judge male judge, by the way, just said, well, he's a musician, so he doesn't make much money. So he doesn't have to pay anything, which is again, a really great lens into the way the system's patriarchal biases feed into this cycle. Like my mom wasn't making shit at the time either. She was literally cleaning toilets, but she was figuring it out because she had to, and because she gave a shit. But to the judge, it was her responsibility to take that on because she was the mother. So figuring out how to provide for her children should be her primary concern. For my dad, as far as the legal system was concerned, he could just play gigs and smoke weed and, you know, whatever the fuck, because he's a dude. And so for him, a lot of other titles ranked higher in importance for him before father. So that's a bit of a window into that system. And I think it's really important to name that because we live in a patriarchy that sees women as both hysterical and disposable, and that sees motherhood as something all women should want 
and sort of should have to take on. Like it's their job to become mothers, which by the way, this goes back to a lot of the abortion laws that you see popping up, but it's not men's jobs to become fathers, which is also reflected in the way that these laws are set up. And what that means is that when a woman stands before a judge and says, look, I'm fucking beside myself trying to raise two young children without any help and I need support, it's very easy for a judge to just be like, well, you're a woman. So for one thing, you're just emotional. It's probably not that bad. And also it's your job, honey. So fucking buck up. And that callousness breeds a particular cultural trauma that leads to this onslaught of single mothers who don't have the support they need in order to do what is without question, the hardest job in the entire world. And one very easy way to understand that trauma is poverty. In 2019, the poverty rate of single mother families in the U S was 31%, which is already like just knowing that that's a lot. That's like almost a third, but to put it in perspective, that's nearly five times more than the rate for married couple families. And when you think about that statistic in relationship to my mom's story of having nothing and then being told by a judge that my dad didn't have to contribute to our financial well-being, you start to understand that motherhood is one way our patriarchal system intentionally keeps women in poverty, which is massively traumatic. And by the way, that's exactly the work that Planned Parenthood acts to prevent. So fuck yeah, Planned Parenthood, just a plug for them because I love them so much. So Laura, I'll stop there. Um, a lot of that was like uh, women's studies one-on-one, but I felt like it was really important because it really relates back to my um, personal history. But I'm so excited to talk to you about your experience as a mom and as a person who works with lots of moms and people who birth. I know you're partnered with a man and actually all of my friends who have kids are also partnered with men. Um, but almost all of my girlfriends who have kids complain about their male partners, sort of expecting them to do most of the parenting, even if it shows up in subtle ways. Like I remember a friend fuming to me at a wedding after she was chasing her toddler around like a maniac while her husband was just like shooting the shit with his friend and boozing it up. And this is totally a guy who identifies as a feminist and a liberal, blah, blah, woof, woof. And yet in their marriage, the expectation that most of the parenting should fall on her shoulders, it was just this pattern that kept showing up and she was really angry. And I wanted to start out by just asking you, is that dynamic something you've come across in your work or, or even in your own partnership? Well, this reminds me of a time before my son was born and my partner and I were talking and preparing for postpartum and for body and breastfeeding. And he said something along the lines of like, well, it's not like it's a full-time job. Oh, I guess what? It turns out it is a full-time job. I mean, yeah, feeding every, I was feeding every hour or 90 minutes, like on the hour. Yeah. And if you do the math, a year of body feeding is around 1,800 hours of a, a parent's time. Right. And this isn't really that far off from a full-time job, considering that a 40 hour work week with three weeks of vacation comes in at 1,960 hours Oh shit! in a year. Yeah. <sighs> So by every definition, it's a full-time job. 
right? Oh my God. And it's a full body job, dude. <laughs> it's a full body job. And that's only one aspect of what's happening at that time, right? So I feel this really ties in to one of those core needs that I mentioned, right? The need to be understood. Mm. Um, and these really high needs are so hard to understand, right? Regardless if you're in the role of mother, father, parent, primary caretaker, right? I didn't understand them going into them. And mostly because there's a lot of secrecy around the unseen labor of mothers. Mm. And a lot of that ties into, right, what you were talking about as motherhood is a way to keep women into po- poverty. Because if we have secrecy around unseen labor, then we don't have to pay for it. Oh, uh... Oh, you mean, okay, wait, expand on that. What do you mean? Okay. So, so basically like, think about this also the role of parent has changed throughout time. So just like the way of like partnership and marriage has changed, it's gone through being about financial security to love marriage, to a partnership where there's like mutual spiritual growth, right? Okay. Parenthood has changed as well. Like from a a parent's use of, essentially be like the boss of the family and the child actually even worked for the family, like on the farm to the parents being a disciplinarian and authoritarian figure. And they're like laying down the rules for the family and the child. Right. And, and now the, the role of the parent is more of like a guide who, for lack of a better word, kind of shepherds their child, gives them opportunity, coaches them, but is essentially allowing the child to have autonomy with this new role, there's an increased emotional labor and emotional intelligence. Mm. At the same time, right, underpinning all this is like the society's expectation of what falls in the traditional tasks of a mother, the traditional tasks of a father in the family, and the tasks of a father have not changed that much, right? The mm. highest expectation, not for your dad, unfortunately, but for a lot of dads is to provide financial security maybe to throw a baseball around with their child in the backyard and right, possibly barbecue once or twice a year. Okay, right. <laughs> but the tasks of the mother have expanded emotionally and practically. Like right. now mother, I'm expected to manage preschool applications, plan social play dates every week, have stimulating activities for my child and like so on and so on. And also, also, it's like you're, you're sort of... Um that you're the compass for your child's like emotional intelligence and growth and like spiritual well-being. It's like, it's the mother's job to sort of, um, make sure that this, this person becomes spiritually and emotionally well. Yeah. But that's new. Our parents, my mother wasn't concerned about that. Totally. She never read a child development book. She didn't take a parenting class. Right. Right. So there's all this additional emotional labor. So basically like the tasks of the mother have expanded. If you look at it like a job on LinkedIn, now there's like five pages of tasks and the pay grade, which is nothing has stayed the same. Right. They're like, here's nothing to do 5,000 times more what you ever have done before. Right. So, and putting it in the context of our capitalist society, we only value what we pay. So this also ties into our need to feel valued. And which is another reason why we feel trauma when we don't feel valued. Mm -hmm. And it's only just now that we're having these open and honest conversations because so much of these expectations have not been talked about or not talked about. And there's a lot of secrecy about the threshold of motherhood. Mm. Well, I love that you are bringing up secrecy because I wanted to ask you about that 
Um, I wanted specifically to ask you about secrecy that's associated with pregnancy. Um, and actually like, I think that's a big part of menopause too. Um, when you and I, we chatted the other day, we were kind of like, and actually the reason this podcast happened is because when we were talking, when I was on my way to Tucson one day and we, we just kind of fell into this conversation and I was so fascinated by it. And in that conversation, we were chatting about something you brought up that really blew my mind. And that was how much sensual and sexual pleasure you experienced during your pregnancy and how much shame there was in your experience of having to hide that and the secrecy around that. Yeah. Like I was just really surprised at how sensitive and sensual my body felt during pregnancy. Yeah. And it wasn't something I ever heard anybody talk about. Totally. Well, and also I'm going to just say it. I feel like this brings in that, um, virgin whore dichotomy that women really struggle with, you know, that's like these archetypes that are forced onto women. And it's like, um, you can't be the mother and be sexual. And here you are pregnant, you know, like really in the motherhood, uh, aspect of your life and, and you're feeling sexual feelings. And it's like, there's all, of course, you're going to experience this kind of shame around it because that's the cultural uh, messaging is that you can't be a mother and be sexual. Yes. And it's not just like, um, it's sexual feelings on a core physiological level, right? So your body is experienced sex is experiencing sexuality. And there's a saying that says, um, what gets the baby in is what gets the baby out. And basically they're referring to oxytocin. So the oxytocin is what makes you want to go have sex with somebody. And then the oxytocin is what plays an important part in preparing the cervix and allowing the cervix to open for the baby. Mm -hmm. Right. And this oxytocin plays such an important part in preparing the cervix, right? Up until the time of birth, it, it like was like my body, my vulva, my vagina were saying, yes, create oxytocin. Please give me pleasure. It was like literally asking for pleasure, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And the challenge is so much of our messaging in our cult culture is that sex and sensuality and pleasure is in relationship to a man. And once you're no longer to be that object or give the relationship to, of pleasure to a man, then your value is left. Wow. So, is left rather, right? So your value is being threatened again. Your safety is being threatened mm -hmm. again. And also, right, we associate, we associate oxytocin with love. So also the need for self-love comes into play here, right? We're conditioned to um, attach this love to an outside source. And then when you're, when you're taking away the oxytocin and the outside source, you're also physically taking away the love. So there's a lot of different layers here. So when you, you mean, so basically you're saying like, it's okay to have this, to have these feelings when they are, um, dude centric, like it's okay for me to, uh, have this, this sexual desire when it's focused on a man, but when I focus that inward and it may, and I make it about me and loving myself and nurturing my body and, and like kind of, um, yeah, like turning inward, that's when it becomes shameful because 
in a patriarchy, we are we are taught that men are always at the center of sexuality. Is that what you're talking about? Absolutely. Because there's no value in you if you're not putting the man at the center of your sexuality. Well, And also like, I think that's a huge reason why there's so much shame for women around, you know, pregnant or not around masturbating period, you know, because it's like, we're not focusing on men. We're focusing on ourselves. And that is why uh, it's wrong. (laughs) from a cultural standpoint, from the messaging that we get from the patriarchy. It's like, um, you know, I mean, religion across the board will teach you that you're not supposed to masturbate, you know, however, whatever gender you identify. But I think beyond that, outside of that, men will talk about jerking off so openly. And yet women, it's like, even with my girlfriends, talking about masturbation is like this taboo thing, which I, I literally have coached my friends around masturbating because I fucking won't stand for that. And I, and so I feel really sensitive about that, about what you're talking about, but I had never realized to your point about secrecy that there is so much um, sexual desire that comes up during pregnancy because no one fucking talks about it. Yeah. Yeah. They just expect that you're sitting at home waiting for the baby to come. Yeah. And of course, and yeah, the assumption is that you don't have sexual desires because mothers can't have sex, like, you know, pregnant, pregnant people don't have sexual desires. That's like wrong. That's weird because you're a mother and there's this, like, um, you know, we have this archetype of a mother who's a virgin. (laughs) (laughs) The fuck? Um, yeah, like, it's impossible. And I, it creates the shame that you're talking about when you do have sexual feelings. And I feel like that, um, that in relationship to, to this hiding shame piece that we're talking about, it comes up again around not telling people you're pregnant for the first three months. Right. Because like, if you miscarry, that's shameful and you don't want people to know and did you kind of, did you experience that? Yeah. Especially since I had two pregnancies end before this pregnancy, mm-hmm. right. With my son. And it's just absolutely bananas that we expect pregnant people to go on with life as normal while they're having a very real exp- experience. Of and loss. To, yeah. And a loss and expect them to keep it secret, right. Until some arbitrary 12 week mark. And it's like, as a culture, I was thinking about this. It's like, we just don't want to be inconvenienced by the reality of being pregnant. We say, please don't have additional needs. Please don't need more rest or more food or nourishment. And please don't have emotional and need emotional support. Mm. And this way it protects us from needing to hold space for someone if there's a miscarriage, because it makes us uncomfortable to talk about the risks, to talk about grief, to talk about death. So we create this level of isolation for a pregnant person from the very beginning, because how can you get support if the pregnancy ends, if the people didn't even know you were pregnant in the first place? Yeah, dude. Um, I think that is so powerful. And that had never even occurred to me until like maybe a month ago, uh, someone who I follow on Instagram, who I actually don't even know. Um, she got pregnant and she was, it was very early on in her pregnancy. Like I think maybe four weeks and she posted about being pregnant and 
in her caption, she said, I am intentionally working against this notion that people who are pregnant should keep quiet about it until a certain point in case they miscarry. And I thought that was so powerful because she was like, A, lots of people miscarry. Mm -hmm. And we don't realize that we don't realize how common miscarriages are because no one fucking talks about it. So when you miscarry, there's this shame around the fact that your body failed. And when your body fails in this specific way, it's almost like your femininity has failed. Your value as a woman has failed. And so you want to keep that secret, right? Except the problem is that it's so common it happens so often that you really believe, you know, it's easy or not necessarily, but it's easy to fall into this thinking and this shame around I've miscarried because I'm a failure and because I'm, um, there's something wrong with my body, et cetera, et cetera. Instead of being like, I had this very, um, common and normal experience. that's deeply painful. And I can reach out to all these other people who I know it's happened to because they were so open about their experiences and ask for support and understanding instead it's like oh i'm i'm in this cave of of darkness and sadness alone over here thinking that that everyone else just immediately fucking got pregnant um and no one understands what i'm going through you mm-hmm. know what i mean totally and we from the very beginning of the fertility experience the pregnant pregnancy experience we are programming pregnant people to be in isolation and to pretend like all of this is happening um, and you're still working 60 hours a week, working out, going out and having date nights with your partner, right? Mm -hmm. Seeing your friends for wine weekends, whatever, like that all of this is just supposed to be happening in silence and kind of behind closed doors. And then that programs you to be a mother behind closed doors. And those extra 40 hours of body feeding in the beginning should just, you know, uh, come naturally, come easily and not take away from the other things you should be doing. Mm. And I think that really goes back to this idea that women should really want uh, motherhood, but also that like, because women are disposable and their experiences are inconsequential, it's like, you should have to be a mother. And I don't want to hear a word about it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to force you into motherhood and into poverty. And I don't want to hear a fucking word about it. That's, that's our culture. It is our culture that we live in. Absolutely. To a T. Yeah. And it's so fucking insane. And like the fact that women don't get to talk about it to me, it, it's really sad. And like, there's this other, um, there's so much about, about birthing that I didn't know about until my sister had her kids. I didn't know about what is the, um, what is it called when you tear from your vaginal canal all the way, like kind of to your anus? What is that called? Oh, I can't remember what it, what it is called right now. And sometimes people get episiotomies and get like in the past, they would cut you to, to present or to prevent that tearing. But yeah, that it, it's very common to yeah. tear. I, I had a second degree tear. Yes. Okay. Exactly. I didn't even know that that was a thing until my sister told me about it. And I was like, 
how is this not a conversation? I also didn't know about women wearing diapers after pregnancy because, um, of all the bleeding and all of the, um, I mean, I don't know what all happens to your vagina and what all happens, um, to your vulva, but I do know that there's like trauma, physical trauma that happens to your vagina and no one talks about that. And I, I really felt like, I I don't know. I felt indignant. Like how dare no one tell women what to expect, you know, that this is like, I mean, and part of it, I think is to, you don't want to scare women, but at the same time, we're adults, you know, tell women what this looks like, right? Like let's have a real open conversation so that you don't think that you're the only woman in the world that this happened to when you go back from the hospital and your vagina has been ripped wide open. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So you, and so you can have making an informed decision if this is what your body, you want your body and your life experience to be. And it goes back to what we were saying in the beginning that of, of course, these traumas, physical and emotional and spiritual are not all of the picture, but they're a very real part of the picture and they deserve to be part of the conversation because they're important and they're real. Yeah. Yeah. And the other part of this, it's so important. It's so real. And men should have to know about this too. You know, people who don't birth should have, it's not just a conversation to tell people who are pregnant, right? Like it's important for everyone to know that this is what people who birth go through because when you don't know that, you create the, um, the environment in which dismissing can thrive. If you don't know that, mm-hmm. a, that a person's vagina just ripped all the way to their anus, like, and that that's not like not uncommon. It's a lot easier to be like, get up and go to work, bitch. Exactly. Exactly. That's why we're having the paid leave conversation that we're having that all of a sudden, like, wow, great. You're giving us four weeks of paid week. They had to fight so hard for four weeks of paid leave. Yeah. So insane. Yeah. It's so, it's so fucking enraging because my Arizona fucking Senator who's a woman was one of the main and a Democrat was like, was like why that wasn't getting passed the paid leave Uh, part of the Biden budget. And I was, and I fucking wrote her an email and I was like, what about paid leave? Do you hate? (laughs) Exactly. Like, What is wrong with you? Like you're a woman. How dare you? It felt like a betrayal to me. You know, not only that, every person on this planet has been birthed by a person. Right. So no matter what you are connected to the experience of birth, you can't get away from that. hundred percent. Yeah. And so, oh yeah, I definitely wrote a strongly worded letter. Um, I wanted to ask you about this for so long. Women are told that being sexually desired is their only form of currency other than becoming a mother, right. And being fertile. That's the other form of currency women have had historically. But these two things, butt heads in pregnancy and motherhood, suddenly you're a mom. So you're no longer supposed to be sexual, kind of like what we were talking about, 
or you're no longer desirable or anyway, that's how a lot of women feel. They feel like they lose that currency of being sexually desirable. What was your experience with that either personally or like even with the, the people you work with who birth? I guess for me, like, I think what it really comes down to is this idea that we are told, right? There's messaging and we're told that this is what sensuality should look like. This is what sexuality should look like. This is what motherhood should look like. This is what womanhood should look like. And we are creating these little boxes and these limitations that are a recipe for disaster because it's a human need to have freedom. And there is nothing less free than being told who you should be. Mm. Yeah, that's really... I'm going to let that one sink in for just a second. Yeah, that's a super, um, that's a really deep trauma. Yeah. And also, I think it just, in so many ways, it sets women up to fail because, I mean, as the patriarchy is wont to do, (laughs) um, because again, desirable that even that word, the assumption is that we're talking about desirable to men Mm -hmm. and we lose track of like feeling ourselves, you know, I say we, but I'm not a mom, but I can imagine that there's this like, um, In with my friendships with women, there is this sort of loss of, um, I want to say celebration around your, your beauty and your sensuality and, um, your femininity that I hear so many of my friends talk about after they have kids, but it's always in relationship to whether or not men believe that's true about them. 100%, 100%. And I I think, right, for me, like, there's also this idea that when you're dating and you're in your, in air quotes, feminine, that the feminine is there to attract, in air quotes, the masculine. So Mm. once you've attracted them and now you have, a child, your femininity has lost its purpose. Oh, uh, that makes so much sense. It can't exist just for the sake of, of your own power, because then you really get into what the power of femininity is, which yes, of course there is power to attract, but it's not just power to attract men. It's power to attract other women into your life. It's power to, um, to, deep knowledge and wisdom and love and caretaking. There is real power in what exists in this own container without needing it to be in relationship to attracting sexual desire. Right. Yeah. And I, I love that we can, 
uh, reframe the word attract and attractive and attraction Mm. uh, to being about attracting awesome fucking women into our lives, like rad friendships and opportunities to like express ourselves and be creative and have fun. Mm -hmm. That's like how, when I think about the feminine, I think about, well, (laughs) I think about fun. And that's probably because like, as like my identity as a Sagittarius (laughs) is very much rooted in fun. It's like, it's actually like a deep core need of mine, but like this idea that attraction and attractive can be about attracting what's deeply meaningful to you. I love that so much. And I love that you presence fun because that goes to another like box that we put in is that the, in a traditional parenting relationship that the father gets to be the fun one. Right. I mean, they're books written called like joyful parenting and they're written for the mother. Hmm. (laughs) You're not supposed to be the fun one. So wait, this, so the book is written to like teach women how to be fun as parents because they're not like traditionally fun. Well, they don't say that, but it's only women who buy these books. Right. 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 Totally. So it's totally for a woman. Come on. Wow. They're like, we know that you're no fun as a mom. Exactly. <laughs> wow. Isn't that interesting? And that's so true because again, like when we're, when we're talking about that LinkedIn list of all of the tasks that you have to do as a mom, it's like, yeah, it becomes, it feels like burdensome sometimes or overwhelming or whatever. And meanwhile, since the dad is like, my job is to barbecue with you and, you know, throw the ball back and forth. And these are fun things, right? So it's like, yeah. And I think my mom struggled with that too, because, um, you know, my mom was so angry and she was so overwhelmed and she was working so hard to provide for us financially, which, you know, and and she was never around because she had to work all the time and there was a massive resentment. And then I would go hang out with my dad and he was a musician. I would go to his gigs and like, you know, have fun. And I wanted that. I wanted fun. And it wasn't wrong of me to want that, but I could, but it really hurt my mom, you know, that like, um, that because of my dad's irresponsibility to the family and to his kids, he was the fun one by default. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, that's another way that this system of forcing women into poverty and single mothers into poverty, you know, it steals your fucking fun, dude. It's not fun to be, to live on the poverty line, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Not only so not only are you feeling unsafe, right? Fun and joy is a really powerful way to access love. Mm, Totally. Yeah, that's so true. Yeah. And it's it's yeah, I think she probably I mean, this is kind of spinning some wheels for me, but I think she probably felt really unloved because we weren't celebrating life with her. But I was 
you know, I was out there celebrating life with this guy who was, who was like, yeah, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Whatever to you, but sure. Come over and we'll like go to my gigs. Um, I wanted to also bring in a question about a topic you touched on when we were talking in my car that day. Um, and when you said it, I was like, holy shit, because as a person who feels anxious about a lot of things, this is one that would be so intense for me were I to ever get pregnant. And yet I had never heard it named before. And that is the fucking unknown. Uh, like, uh. <laughs> Sorry, because it's all unknown. It's so much unknown. Yeah, like if you, like pregnancy is full of unknowns. You know, like what your first of all, what's going to happen to your body during pregnancy, but also during birth, and then of course motherhood itself is so full of unknowns, and even this unknown of like, will I even like this child who's coming? Like, I, I would love to hear you speak on that a little bit because. I can only imagine that my anxiety would be out the fucking roof if I ever got pregnant. Yes. Like I've been thinking about unknowns and like my spiritual and healing journey a lot recently. Um, And it's also tied into like the need to feel safe because so much is unknown. So much about parenting can make me feel unsafe. Right. Mm-hmm. And so as a person who grew up in an unstable household, I developed a coping mechanism. And then I always want to be in a known situation where I can use that coping mechanism because that feels like safety to me. So walking into like any deeply unknown situation, but especially a situation like motherhood brought up the trauma because I could not use my coping mechanisms anymore. And so can you give some examples of these coping mechanisms? Um, okay. So, so right. So now I'm in postpartum and I haven't slept and right. And I'm responsible for a person that I don't know. Right. And that I'm getting to know a little bit more and more and what their needs are. Right. And it's really heightened in the beginning also because their baby and their only way to communicate their needs is by crying. Mm. And we have a lot of judgments in our society about what crying means. Mm. So here I am a postpartum person and I would hear my baby cry. And on a physical level, it would tell my, my body, like my baby needs me. But then on an emotional triggering level, there's the messaging that your baby shouldn't cry. And I was told as a child not to cry. So I internalize that message, right? And there's all those levels of shame and triggers around crying. So I would really try to change that message externally by saying to him, every time he would cry, I would say, thank you for telling me what you need when Mm -hmm. he would cry. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's, I can't even, I can't even, um, there it's like something as basic as crying, right? Which is like, A, you know that children cry. B, um, you know that once your child is going to be born, your child is going to cry. <laughs> like those are things you know. And yet when it happens, and this is one of the unknowns, it's like things are going to come up for you, especially if you grew up in a household where there was trauma around crying, which is like, if you were born in the eighties, that was pretty much like fucking guaranteed. (laughs) 
Um, you know, I'll give you something to cry about. Go to your room. If you're going to cry, stop, stop crying right now. You know, all of that stuff. And so like, yeah, you, there are the unknowns that you can kind of, you can say like, I don't know how my birth is going to go. I don't know, you know, blah, blah, et cetera. I don't know what's going to happen to my body, but there are the unknowns that you don't even know that you don't know. Right. Yes. <laughs> like exactly. I, I'm going to be triggered, uh, and go into my own like trauma and, um, childhood shit around crying. Yeah. And these triggers happen one after another. I mean, and I think, um, and so it, it really calls up like, right. What tools do you have to reparent yourself so that you can then be regulated to parent this person. Okay. I'm going to ask another question, but I want to come back to that. The, the tools that you're referring to, I want to come back to that. Okay. Um, but I have this other question that I wanted to post to you because I think it is so deep and so important, so powerful. You mentioned something to me that I never heard talked about. And that is this deep connection that birth has to death. Mm. Can, can you kind of expand on, can you expand on that? Yeah. There was a couple moments that I think about, right? Like, so when I was pregnant around 20 weeks with my son, I started really grieving the two pregnancies that had ended in miscarriage before this pregnancy. And I didn't expect that at all. I expected with this pregnancy only to feel like grateful, joy, excitement, right? So I was really floored by my body feeling this intense grief and my body saying to me, hey, pay attention to the sadness about the death of your earlier pregnancies. I was like, that's a real downer body. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, first of all. And then, then in postpartum, I was surprised. I had this like new fear of death because before pregnancy, I had, I felt like I had come to this piece about the fact I was going to die. Right. But then now that I was a parent, I felt really attached to living. Mm. And when I thought about dying, it felt so, so scary and brought up so many emotions and also past experiences where I was physically close to death. Mm. And so I didn't feel fear going into my birth process. And that probably was naive, right? And I had a relatively um, uneventful birth process, I would say, okay? But I still have this, on the other side of the birth process, I have this deep respect for the birth process because you are walking so close to death, right? I felt like I was in this like really tender place and I'm kind of a etymology nerd and like like the the etymology of the word tender means thin and interesting and that's what it was I was in this thin place where the veil is thin between life and death and we don't like to talk about like I said before we don't like to talk about death there's pressure in the manifestation culture to only talk about positive outcomes right so there's no space to hold conversation around these fears and experiences yeah that's that is so real and I feel like it's only been recently um that I feel women dying during childbirth. Well, I have a couple of things to say about it. One for black people who birth, um, you know, that mortality rate is super fucking high. Yes. 
And so that is a very real current concern for a lot of people who birth still. Yeah. It's three Um, to four times higher for black people who birth than white people who birth. Wow. The fuck that's insanity. And, and yeah. And the, and the other, um, side of that is for people who aren't really worried about that. That is a very new thing (laughs) to not be worried. Like, um, you know, women dying during childbirth is, has historically been one of the most common ways for women to die. So like the idea that you wouldn't be worried about that is really new. And for a lot of people, even still today, they do not have that luxury and, and they very much feel like that's a real threat. So I think, um, and I love, first of all, I'm also an etymology nerd. So I love knowing that the, I'm assuming Latin root of tender is thin. And when you think about the thinning of the veil and how tender that is and how vulnerable that is and how not talked about that is, you know, that you would, that of course being pregnant and going through, um, a birthing process would bring up a lot of grief because it's all, even if you don't, and I was, um, I was talking about this in my other podcast, my true crime astrology podcast the other day. Um, even if there's not a literal death, there is always that emotional death. You are, you know, becoming a mother. It is a form of death and rebirth, you know, not just for the child, but for you. Like, of course, the child has the death of being in the womb and the rebirth of being outside the womb and being independent physically from the mom or the, or the person. And for the mom, it's the death of this whole life that existed before that person was there and this, and the rebirth of this entirely new relationship that is incredibly profound and will bring deep joy and, and its own pain and trauma. For sure. And now science is proving that a birthing person's brain changes and motherhood, parenthood changes your brain. So there is, are these very real changes that happen in the body? Um, and then emotionally that, that feels like a form of ego death in some ways. Yeah, I can totally see that. Yeah. And it's, and it's not shocking that the brain changes, but it is shocking that we don't talk about that. (laughs) Well, and and your body changes, right? Also, I mean, like, because you have little bits and pieces of your child's DNA left behind in you. Oh, wild. What? Yeah. Like that was just something I read about. So there are all these changes that are happening on the deepest, coarsest physical level. Um, that, yeah, when you go in for your six week checkup, your one six week checkup postpartum, they don't tell you about, they just check, you know, your cervix and say, yeah, you can have sex now. Right. Of course. They're like, they're (laughs) right. They're like, 
here's the big question, honey. Can you have sex yet or not? And I'm about to tell you, it's like, baby, that's, that's not the question. That's not why I'm here. The two things that they talked about are, can you have sex? Right. Again, in relationship to a man. And then can you work out so you can look good having sex again in relationship to a man? Wow. 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 I'm sorry. This is just like blowing my fucking mind. Um, yeah. Like no wonder so many women experience, uh, postpartum depression. And then I know there are probably tons of reasons for that, but this unnamed, like this sort of, yeah, this unnamed experience of being devalued after doing one of the most incredible things uh, that, that can, one of the most, um, what do I want to say? Like profound feats of humanity is to, is to have, is to birth a child and then to have your medical professional look at you and devalue you in such a, in such a way that it dehumanizes you. Like you're not about you and you don't belong to you. You belong to him and, and the him sure maybe is your partner or your husband, but it's also the patriarchal him. You Mm -hmm. don't, you don't, you're not autonomous. You are the property, the sexual property of, of the bigger him. (laughs) Exactly. And I can no longer really make money off of you. So I don't care about giving you any services. And, uh, you know, the patriarchy, patriarchy and capitalism wants you to get back to work as soon as possible. So on so many different levels, the, the messaging is you are devalued, devalued, devalued after what you have done is literally to help keep humanity going, by the way. Right. Yeah. And like, oh, also, by the way, no one fucking else can do it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> by the way, these, this, this great hymn on high can't fucking do it. You know, like that's, uh, therein lies the rub is that there's no, within this culture, I'll, I'll give an example. Um, I was talking to a friend recently, a man who is, um, who is gay. And I think because he's gay, he has this broader sensibility around femininity. And I mentioned to him that I was on my period and, um, he said, Oh, um, thank you so much for embodying the, um, I don't remember exactly what he said, but he was like, thank you so much for like embodying this ability to procreate in this, like, and, and for like, holding this space within your own body of like humanity living. (laughs) (laughs) And I had this moment because the patriarchy tells you you're gross when you're on your period, you're not desirable, you're emotion, you're too emotional, you're, um, you're tired. So you're again, like the, the, the cog of capitalism can't, use you, you know, never once in my entire life had I told a man that I was on my period and had him thank me for the physical labor that I do to ensure, uh, 
the longevity of the human race. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. When you put it that way, every month, every fucking month I do this. And I was like, damn, this is the, this is what's in the gap between a patriarchy and a matriarchy Mm -hmm. in the patriarchy. When women bring up their periods, we say, thank you. Yes. We honor you. Right. Versus like, ew, you're gross. Oh, just keep fucking churning out kids though. And then like, you know, it's, it makes me think of what happened in China, you know, when they had that law where you could only have one child because of overpopulation. And so everyone's literally throwing their daughters over bridges, their fucking infant girl babies over bridges and mountains and shit, because they just want, they, they don't value girls. Mm -hmm. And then fast forward 20 years and there are no women to fucking procreate with. And they're having to like, you know, search all through like India and, you know, Singapore and outside of China for women, because they literally threw the women away. And what did that do? It made it impossible for them to procreate. Like you fucking idiot. What did you think was going to happen? Exactly. Uh, Okay. So these are all massive issues that we've talked about. And I know this is maybe painting a broad stroke, but I wanted to go back to what you brought up a moment ago um, about tools and healing. And I, I know there's not like in quotes, a cure per se for, for any of this, um, because we, we are talking about such big cultural issues. But when you think about the things that have been most healing for you and some of your in some of your most traumatic mom experiences, what comes to mind for you? Well, I think it's the word connection Mm -hmm. is the through line for me. There's the connection to my inner life and really um, validating that inner life. Right. And um, I think we've talked about this before, like that mantra of, of course I feel that way. Mm dropping into that. So there's connection to myself um, that has been supported also by therapists and healers and that level of work. There's connection to myself that's also supported by like close friends who have seen my journey and all the different parts of me. I think that was also really important um, postpartum, right? To have people surrounding me who don't just see me through the lens of motherhood, but see me through the lens of the Laura that they know for the past seven, 10, 15, 20 years. Right. Um, like you're, you're not just a mom now you're, you're you. Yes, exactly. And it can be easy to forget that. Right. Right. Um, So I think really staying connected to the people who see all those different facets of me has been really vital. Um, And then connection to um, real postpartum professionals, right? Like doing pelvic floor work, somatic work, um, um, you know, people who are, are really, really know what they're they're doing has been invaluable for me as well. Um, Okay, great. And I, and I love all of those. And I wanted to name something that I heard you say in there. And that was like embodied in everything that you mentioned 
And that's compassion for yourself and realizing that you're not just momming this child. You're also parenting yourself. You're also saying, what do I need? Let me look very carefully. Okay. I need a professional and I need connection and I need to feel seen. And I feel like that's something that doesn't just apply to moms. That's something that we all need in this like trauma, um, journey is like, we need to see what our needs are and we need to respond to those needs. And I think it's so beautiful because you essentially laid out what that looks like for you as a mom. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, it doesn't, it it doesn't, that personal journey doesn't change based on what context it is. I'm just, that's just another school, which is motherhood, right? Oh yeah. Isn't that interesting? We think of like motherhood as this entirely separate or anyway, maybe it's just me, but like, this is so separate from the rest of your life. Like it's so distinct, but actually it's just like this really powerful way of um, also teaching you how to parent yourself. Yeah. And that's a new conversation that we just get to be part of now. This conversation wasn't happening in our parents' generation, right? This is even, even I would say 20 years ago, this conversation was like really only happening maybe on the fringes. Totally. Oh, this has been such an incredible um, dialogue. I can't thank you enough for coming on, Lauren. I know also you had some amazing resources you wanted to share. Yes, because I know that people can be experiencing many different levels of trauma that can occur from being pregnant, traumatic birth experiences, perinatal mood disorders, postpartum depression, postpartum psychosis, and postpartum anxiety. So if you've come to this podcast and you're feeling the need for support in those areas, I really recommend reaching out to Postpartum Support International. You can call or text their helpline. It's 1-800-944-4773. You can also call the National Crisis Text Line or text them rather. If you text HOME to 741741 from anywhere in the U.S. about any type of crisis, you'll get a response and support. And then, of course, I think it's always really important to mention the National Suicide Prevention Hotline, right? And that is 1-800-273-8255. Yeah, thank you for those because that is so important. And also your app is a source of support for new moms and people who birth. And I'd love if you could share a little bit about that so people kind of know you know, what it is and how it works. Great. Thank you. Yes. So the app is Mothership Rising. We're a free app on um, Android and Google Play and the app store. And it's a really simple idea, which is like a meal train for emotional support. So you have a, a new mom or a parent who's welcomed a new child into their life and you can create a circle of support for them. And in this circle of support, your friends and family members, your trusted community go into the calendar and sign up for dates to do a text check-in on you and just checking in to see how you're doing. It's really simple. 
And I love that because that's, that was one of the things that you named as being healing for you is support. And that's exactly what you created. And I also wanted to say that my friend Courtney, who just had her baby has been using it with us. So I'm on it too. And I texted her the other day and I was like, it's my day to support you. What do you need? What can I do? And even just as a friend, it felt good to know that I had my designated days and could be intentional, intentional about supporting her. Um, and like giving her what she needed. So I know personally that like, I'm showing up for her in a way that is helpful. So that it's an incredible resource and it's also fun. Like it was really fun <laughs> to like, and I love the little text messages that it sends um, with the like really interesting messages. I just thought it was really well done. So fuck yeah, Laura, that was Thank amazing. You. you just fucking made an app. <laughs> Yeah, that was my quarantine project. So good. Laura, thank you so, so, so much for coming on. I can't tell you how much I have loved talking to you. This has just been so really, really wonderful. Thank you for holding space for this conversation. Oh my God, my pleasure. And if y'all want to follow along with me, you can find me on Insta at Remy's, R-E-M-E-E-Z. And if you have a minute and you're into the pod, head over to Apple Podcasts and like, comment, subscribe. It really does help. And in the meantime, enjoy the party, baby. Bye.